We back, baby. Welcome back. I'm so excited for this episode, to be honest with you. I've been amped on it for a while. What you got? I'm going to launch into a one-hour... Sermon. Vibe check. Give it. Yeah, on how feel. <laughs> Today's chapter is the Spurn Suitor, second in a series of suitors for Daenerys Targaryen. I just said her name really weird. <laughs> second in, the, in a, a string of chapters, one of two, two of two. The first being the Iron Suitor, now a Spurn Suitor. I'm excited about this chapter. We did some things differently this time around. We asked a couple questions on our Patreon. We asked some questions on Twitter, um, which I think will be fun to like guide our discussion a little bit. And we are almost to the end, or what we suspect to be the end, of Quentin's journey to get Daenerys and or dragons. As we come to find out, Daenerys is not his ultimate goal. And I just thought this chapter was nonstop bangers. Really? Yeah. And I went, so I was rereading it. So we read the chapter a little while ago, didn't end up recording, came back and read it again this morning to like refresh my memory and get back ready to prep again. And especially when I'm reading it not to record and just kind of like reading it over as an overview. It was one of those chapters that was just kind of short and really fast-paced the whole time. I mean, it kind of starts out in the middle of a conversation, Mm -hmm. basically, which I thought was really fun. So I just think a lot of stuff happens in this chapter, and there's a lot of really cool questions that we can ask, and Quentin's time is almost done. When was the last time we did a Quentin chapter on the podcast? Oh, I looked it up a while ago. It was a couple years ago. I think it was 2017. Yeah, it was a while ago when we did his last last chapter. So it was kind of hard to remember, and I had to refresh my memory a little bit. I should probably refresh my memory right now <laughs> again on to exactly what was going on. But basically, his situation is continuing to get more and more desperate. In his desperation, I think some pretty good game playing popped up. What do you think? What's your overall? I really liked it too. I I liked getting. A closer look at what seems to be um, a fixture of can't possibly describe the entire underbelly of Marine in Zarina's purple lotus, mm-hmm. and um, I liked all the context that the the Tatter Prince gives on what we missed from Quentin's chapters. Part of the reason we haven't had Quentin on the podcast for so long is because we've got very few POVs in A Dance with Dragons. When we had him last, he was with Daenerys, and we've been connecting the pieces until then. And this conversation with Old Rags has uh, connected a lot of those dots. And I liked his friends. And I liked the settings. And I liked George's volume 11 descriptions of the world Mm -hmm. describing the current situation that Quentin's finding himself in. Or at least the details of the world around him that he should pay attention to as during and before he makes all of these new decisions. It's like all those details of the world around him plus all these heightened emotions after just having come off of Barrison telling them they should get the heck out of here. Mm-hmm. It's like that's how the chapter kind of opens. I feel like those details of a place like the Purple Lotus and or the door with the Purple Lotus and things like that. Like You just feel the tension of 
being hyper aware of everything that's going on. He will meet you on the morrow by the spice market. Look for a door marked with a purple lotus. Knock twice and call for freedom. It's like this cool underground place, like some place that we would never go with somebody like Daenerys, you know, I mean, that's very obvious, but it's like you were saying earlier, having an opportunity to kind of see this underground fighting pit, essentially, happening. Yeah, like another version of Illegal Games. Yeah. It's just entertainment, I think. With this, like, secret door to this secret underground place. I just realized that the last Quint appearance that we had was in the chapter we did last with with Barry. Totally forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, briefly. Yeah. That little thing, conversation at the end. And I really like that transition. The transition to this chapter being directly after. And like you said, at the beginning, sort of hitting the ground running. Because that was definitely the feeling at the end of Barry's chapter. And the feeling of the momentum with all this stuff sort of coming together. Barristan's plan. But also what's happening with the Yunkai outside the gates. And what's happening with the harpy poten- the harpies potentially beginning to add friction while all that's happening outside and feeling more and more like his dar's control in the city with the head rolling is losing its grip not knowing who tried to poison danny or someone else and then we're thrust right into this opening paragraph it's like you can still feel the movement going from one one chapter to the next i have two sets of notes Ooh, okay. <laughs> the hour of ghosts was almost upon them with sir garish drinkwater returned to the pyramid to report that he had found beans books, and old Bill Bones in one of Marine's less savory cellars, drinking yellow wine and watching naked slaves kill one another with bare hands and filed teeth. Beans pulled a blade and proposed a wager to determine if deserters had bellies full of yellow slime, Sir Garris reported. So I tossed him a dragon and asked if yellow gold would do. He bit the coin and asked what I meant to buy. When I told him, he slipped the knife away and asked if I was drunk or mad. It just feels like a the kind of uh, swashbuckling sort of heroic beginning to a chapter that I think ultimately ends up being a sort of quintessential mystery feel, especially when we Mm -hmm. have the description of, uh, or rather the the request that they knock on the door of the purple purple lotus in that way. It just seems so baked in old school mystery novel, something that we're used to. And I don't know if that's because George likes that element and he wants to put his own spin on it or at least have a – a presence of it, or at least be able to express that in one part of his books. Not somewhere in, in Westeros where we're dealing with the kind of decay that I'm thinking of um, of Brienne going up the countryside. And I think that those elements could have been mixed in there some, but they were more so taken over by the weird violence, Rorge Bider, the threat of the hound, and then people that we really care about being hurt, whereas Quentin's kind of a, a satellite character for us right now. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we like him. Maybe we don't, but he's in our point of view, so I feel like we're ingratiated to him some, and we want to see him potentially, I don't want to say succeed, but maybe just survive. Maybe we don't like him enough to see him succeed in his plan because maybe we think that he did come too late and maybe his plan is futile. But I feel like the stakes are a little bit lower, and the scenario with the Tattered Prince, the way that Quentin is making these decisions and not really paying attention to his reality, really just not taking it seriously. Maybe George also took it a little bit less seriously and put in this kind of, like I said, quintessential mystery element to sort of, uh, I don't know, show how they are making light of Quentin, but also how we could also make light of the situation a little bit. Mm -hmm. Even though it's really serious, it's just what the hell are they doing? 
A hundred percent. It's almost like a little cliche. Right. Exactly. Like you're talking about like quintessential. It's it's almost like some of those different cliches when you mm-hmm. think about typical story arcs in a mystery novel or in a fantasy novel, these different like tropes. I feel like Quentin's story specifically just kind of falls into some of these cliches a little bit more of what it's like to be a hero. And you're talking about him kind of making some of these wild decisions and whether or not we should take them seriously. And I I made a note somewhere that I need to find really quick. Quentin says something. So he's, this is this really great conversation that he has with Garrus that we'll probably want to spend a lot more time talking about. But as Garrus is trying to talk him out of this idea of going to steal a dragon and Quentin is like very hyper focused on this idea that he needs to avenge his not avenge but to make the death of his friends mean something and he's so deeply trusting in who he is as a prince of Dorne and he thinks that that's something that's going to carry him and he's it's his own blood it's his own destiny blah 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 we hear him reference that a lot in this chapter and it's really funny I made this note because I feel like when Daenerys says stuff like that it's go time hyped up you totally have all those rights this is you're the blood of the dragon so exciting but when quentin says it i'm just like okay kind of rolling my eyes a little bit like why are you putting so much and maybe it's because he hasn't been really successful but he's putting so much stock into who he what his name is without really ever being able to necessarily back it up or like He'll he'll choose that over his over others' intuition, which I think or is interesting because, or even his own, because when Daenerys does that, it's like heck yeah. Well, think about how she got to where she is and who she's mixed with while she's done mm-hmm. it. It seems like she is living in her own mythology, and so I think it's easier to follow her. But the way that they got here was lying to the windblown and basically smuggling aboard their ships. Right. It's like she has put in the work a little bit more to deserve it, quote-unquote deserve it, while Quentin, you know, has kind of swindled his way around. Do you think that he really thinks that they can succeed? That's a really good question. I think that he thinks he has no other choice. I think that he feels fairly desperate in his current situation. Like he... He's just very motivated by this desire to not fail and this desire to be the hero and this desire to come home with the prize. Because he says, let me find it, but Garrus is like, is this really what you want to do? Is this truly what you want to do? And he's like, well, this is what I have to do. This is what I have to do for Dorn, for my father, for Cletus and Will and Maester Kedri. Yeah, and it's like at the beginning of the chapter, he's like, you guys can all go home because this is my journey. This is my destiny that I need to fulfill. And they're like, well, we're going to stay with you, but okay. And so I, I I, think that he just isn't, instead of kind of looking at all the facts, he's, and maybe this is all colored by the fact that we know what happens. And so it's like, I can look back and be like, well, sure, obviously this yeah. wasn't going to work out for him. but. Instead of looking at all these facts, like you look at everything that's going on in Marine period, yeah. the fact that he turned to somebody like the Tattered Prince as his only option has got to say, tell you something about kind of 
He's been told to leave, and he's like, oh, well, maybe I'm going to go try to make a deal with the wind blowing after turning my backs on them. How is that a good idea? (sighs) So I just see him kind of desperately floundering to make something happen. happen. It is still not too late to abandon this folly, Garris said, as they made their way down a foated alley toward the Old Spice Market. The smell of piss was in the air, and they could hear the rumble of a corpse cart, iron-rimmed wheels off ahead. Old Bill Bone used to say that pretty Maris could stretch out a man's dying a moon's turn. We lied to them, Quint. Used them to get us here. Then went over to the Storm Crows. Thanks for that. But yeah, you said you were you were saying that based on what's happening in Marine, but based on specifically what's happening around them in this chapter. At that one point, he was talking about needing to give meaning to the people in their party that have died along the way. And Garris points at the guy that's dead against the wall. And he's like, what about that guy? Was there meaning for his death? Literally outside of their conversation. Another one of those kind of, I, I, I guess you could equate it in some way to just how on the head mysterious the knocking on the door is to the, to the hideout where the guy that we have to go meet is. With the password. With the password. Freedom. It's right there. And that guy's dying right there. Why do you think they're still following him if it's so obvious to all of them that their plan and the momentum of their plan is gone? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I think that they're... Because they could just There's... leave. They they have a feeling that shit's about to break out here. He gave them the option to leave. I think that there's some loyalty there a little bit. I think that there's some... I mean, their friends have died and they have seen a lot and it's kind of... They care for him, I would assume, and they want to see him come home with them. They would probably want to try to protect him as much as they can. I mean, there's... You could... I'm sure you could say that they have these ulterior motivations or mm, these I haven't thought about that. more self-preserving motivations. I don't know necessarily what those would be, but from like a very base level read, I would say they probably want to make sure he doesn't do something too stupid. They could also be afraid of going back to Dorne even further empty-handed, empty, empty princed. Yeah, that wouldn't look good. That wouldn't look good. But it's, this, it's a different kind of fear than what Quentin has because he's talking about the judgment of people from the Sand Snakes, from his father, from the families of those that have been killed along the way. They also, which one of them was like, as when they talked about going back on a boat, they turned to green. So maybe they just don't want to <laughs> sail home. The journey home is going to be too It'd hard. It'd be a long march. Quentin kind of thinks to himself about how his friends have lost sight of their true purpose and that... They're not really focused, and their head real isn't really in the game. And if they understood the true purpose as much as he did, then maybe they would not be joking around about King Harzu and calling everybody Harzu, which I thought was so really good. funny. So good. Because we were talking about that a couple episodes ago, about how all of their names I are I feel so like similar. I talk about that all the time, and then pr- finally George <laughs> is like, did. you know what, uh, that's what is going on. I've been thinking it this whole time. Yeah. Do you trust this piece, Quint? I don't. Half the city is calling the Dragon Slayer a hero, and the other half spits blood at the mention of his name. Harzu, the big man said, Arch. Quentin frowned. His name was Hargaz. Hisdar, Humzum, Hagnog, what does it matter? I call them all Harzu. He was no dragon slayer. All he did was get his arse roasted black and crispy. So if this is the perspective of his friends, I'm just wondering, could it all be about being afraid to go back home empty-handed? No. Aren't they afraid for their lives at this point? I think that they don't want Quentin to do something stupid. Do you I think, think that they... I would assume that their motivation is... 
purely because they've seen a lot and they've been through a lot and they probably have a little bit of loyalty to each other. Or mostly to him. Because yeah, to, that's to each I mean. other, they're probably yeah. having side conversations. Yeah. And they're loyalty like, I don't know about all this. Yeah. That's why they're trying to talk him out of leaving. I mean, it's not like they're like going along with it without putting roadblocks in his way. Half the chapter is spent about how, you know, you can't tame a, a dragon with a history lesson. Your lineage doesn't mean anything. Let's listen to Barristan. Let's get out of here. I mean, your your men's lives have meaning. You don't need to feel beholden to this quest that just because you're trying to because it seems like his entire motivation is just to kind of I mean and that you may have read this differently but it feels like his entire motivation in this chapter is about making sure that his friend's death means something yeah I've, I'm still questioning about that there was a, a quote that he he had an aside I think it was directly after the road leads through her not to her. Daenerys is the means to the prize, not the prize itself. Which opens up a whole other bag of worms for me. I'm still on this, them falling Quint into potential doom thing, but could it be that they're suffering from the nobility structure in Westeros a little bit, and they've just been raised to follow their liege lord in a way? Or at least the House Martell being from Dorne. Potentially. And just having a, a kind of unwavering loyalty that goes beyond logic. Like they swore an oath or something to take bring him home safely. Sure. Kind yeah. of situation. Yeah. Yeah. Probably, likely. I mean, he is a prince. As much as he kind of looks silly sometimes, like he does have that title. It probably feels impressive being in Sunspear. And they're like, ah, this is all mine. And I work mm-hmm. for that guy. Even if he's kind of been sent on a fool's errand, it's like there's a little bit of weight there. So I'm, I'm sure that there's some some sort of connection. I don't know. Some it, sort of... It just feels a little risky to me. They're going indoors without masks on in a place that has <laughs> the bloody flux. Which is wild. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just like, I, I don't know if it's a uh, a sort of forced forced set of behaviors from the perspective of an author that doesn't have anything else to do or if it further speaks on their characters just not really caring about the obvious signs of the world around them well what would you do what would you do say i was a prince Mm. you know or like one like someone that you're friends with they have this they're on this quest and they're feel like it's their duty to see it through what would you do in that situation would you stay and try to convince them to do the right thing and to act as like a guide and a helper or would you say this is a fool's errand at this point Daenerys doesn't want you it is wild here everything's about to pop off let's leave I wouldn't abandon them but I feel like I would I would really want to know what it is they're after and with Daenerys not being in the city at all, with people that they don't really know being in charge, Barristan being their only glimmer of an anchor of reality within the Great Pyramid and within the the power struggles between all of the powers converged around the city, I feel like a good conversation and some some uh, some better questioning than they give him instead of just mm-hmm. saying boldly and uh, upfront like that's a bad idea, trying to explore his thoughts and 
give them their perspective, I think would help a lot and maybe change Quentin's plan a little bit. But it doesn't seem like there's a lot of that with them. Were they there for that conversation that he had with Daenerys that he's referencing about how the dragon has three heads, my marriage need not be Mm-mm. the end of all no. your hopes? That was just Quentin yeah, and Daenerys I'm, talking. They were in the pit. So they don't hear that kind of... I know she was like, I know why you're here for fire and blood, not necessarily to marry me. Sure. So maybe you're right. Like he hasn't communicated that. It just doesn't enough, but even suspect because to us, I don't even feel like he's communicated what he wants that specifically. And I know that inside of his own thoughts, because this is his point of view, that we're given italics that reference the fact that he does want to avenge people's death. But like I said, that quote of, uh, Daenerys being the road leads through her, not to her. Daenerys is the means to the prize, not the prize itself. I'm wondering what prize he's really looking for beneath all of the sort of glitz and gallantry of talking about adventures and his his role as a, a, a prince of Dorne. And yeah, I guess he thinks that he's a, a dragon too. I mean, I think that a dragon is the ultimate prize for anybody okay. in all of the world at this point but but so he wants to be the guy riding the dragon that's able to do what exactly because of all the stuff that's happening in westeros it's not like dorn's being besieged right now and he needs to protect his father's lands sure his, but his family a, history having a dragon completely changes your power dynamic i would assume yeah but power for what though what does he power... really want is it just reputation reputation by taylor swift <laughs> maybe how can he make this, manifest it in this reality? You're going to have to go far east to the shy to yeah. transdimensionally look for MP3s. I mean, I think that goes back to why he was sent on this mission in the first place, which I think that this obviously isn't Dorne's number one. Like, they're not banking everything on Quentin's mission. Exactly. I think even him having left, it was kind of, let's give him a job to do. And if it works, then that's... Amazing, and if it doesn't work, then that's kind of the vibe I get. That's and so such a Lyrio vibe as well. So I don't know, but I, I mean, I think that when you have a dragon, you can kind of do whatever you want. So he wants to do whatever he wants. He wants to be the hero, and he wants to come home flying on a dragon or wed to Daenerys Targaryen to say, I am the most powerful, I fulfilled my quest, I did everything that was asked of me as a prince. It is my destiny to rule the world, and I or am... Or part of it. <laughs> yeah, you know? So I just feel like he is just playing into a lot of cliches. That's just how I read his So is chapters. he... It's just that so much of the story is grounded in a realism that is parallel to the fantasy elements, and it seems like this might be the only character that really deep down is believing in these fantasy elements. Not even someone who lives in their own mythology like Daenerys thinks of things in that way. Potentially. I think, and, you know, there's a lot of question about, question that I have about why is somebody like Quentin included at all? Is this just a world-building exercise? Is this just another character to kind of build out how wild things are in Marine right now? Is this just another piece to kind of show how much Dorne is putting their feelers out there you know what is Quentin supposed to teach us as a character and it might be one of those like fantasy elements where he 
has all the right stuff, but he still, it like ups the stakes maybe a little bit as like a hero who kind of succumbs to all the consequences. Because if you look at like this point in the story, we don't really have a lot of consequence, like real death consequences for any of our main guys. And so maybe this is meant to kind of amp the stakes up a little bit, even if it's just somebody who is a little bit more of a, I would argue, side character. Mm. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online counseling platform that allows you to access licensed professionals anywhere at any time. It's especially convenient these days when we're all stuck at home. BetterHelp.com is also available worldwide. And it is a lot less expensive than traditional in-person counseling or receiving therapy from someone who has an office that you have to physically go to and wait for. I think in 2020, therapy is more important than ever. And having the opportunity to access that from the comfort of your home, I think, makes the whole process a little bit less scary. And even if you don't think that you need therapy, it is a really helpful exercise to help you get to know yourself better. I don't think that everyone has someone to talk to or definitely not someone that they can rely on that will truly listen and not make part of the conversation about themselves just because that's how we are naturally as humans. But someone who does this for a living, an actual professional at, at listening to you and helping you unpack things you might be dealing with, I think is really useful to have access to. And the fact that you can use BetterHelp to talk to someone, to video chat with someone, to message someone on your phone even. Like you said, all from sitting at your house, using the technology that you already own, that you're listening to this podcast on. I think it's cool that something like counseling has been affected by technology like this. This is a really good development, one of those good things that I think will help a lot of people. Another really great thing about BetterHelp is they really help you facilitate a great match for you. So it is easy and free to change counselors if you need to. So if you start a session with somebody and you feel like it's not working out, which actually is pretty common, they will for free help you find somebody that is helpful for you. They've uh, started recruiting counselors in all 50 states now because their platform's gotten so popular. So there's a large variety of licensed professionals that you can speak to. We want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash owns. That is O-W-N-S. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health at betterhelp.com. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash owns. I, I like it for the look at the tattered prints because I think he's going to be more instrumental moving forward if he gets anything related to what he wants. And from the decision he made to split up his company and to hedge his bets with Marine, sort of knowing ahead of time that he couldn't trust the company of the cat um, who was employed by Young Kai at the time and that they basically were splintering off to do their own thing to head toward Marine and that they would obviously hire them to go with them. But seeing it as an opportunity to get more power mm-hmm. instead of just working with the person that he's been paid by, I think has such larger implications, not only to his backstory, but to the future struggle that's going to go down in Essos. That's going to be framed by all of the seemingly mythic and really uh, like world damnation style of things that's happening in North in the North of Westeros. And uh, 
it's good to have such a large character moment for the Tattered Prince here because I feel like we get a huge info dump about who he is and what he believes in. And you were saying earlier that he's shrouded in mystery, but I feel like his mystery is a lot less mysterious now because I've had I've spent this time with him now. And if it's a fantasy uh, sort of arc in its, in, in its true sense that Quentin Martell, who was comfortable enough to be kind of a jackass in the throne room scene in the last chapter where a head was thrown, who's kind of uh, soft, who's uh, someone who's been raised in court comfortably in his father's court. His father is also someone that's got a physical disability, so he's not able to really, uh, I think, be the kind of head of his family that he would fear in a way that would give him a, a sort of personality that, I think was grounded in more realism. I think it just added to the kind of unrealistic picture of the world that he has. So it could be that we're, we're getting insight into someone whose situation, even though he's in such a rough place in such a, a twisted part of the story where people are laying against the wall, dying when they enter the first level of the purple Lotus, there's two naked men fighting each other to the death as entertainment for a half mm -hmm. full room. Yeah. It's like a little gust of wind, a little pleasure cruise for George R. R. Martin to add it in <laughs> and to use a great house of Westeros to to show it like you said for someone that like Doran is able to just add on the side of the rest of his plans, a just in case, but the person that's been just in case cast into this plan having a sort of unrealistic and fully attentive version of how things are going inside of his head. That's kind of that's a view that I share, and I feel like it might be a little dismissive, like might be a little pessimistic, just about like where he fits into the whole grand scheme of things. But I feel like it's an easier way to break it down. Mm -hmm. To say that Quentin doesn't really know what he's doing, and that he doesn't have a brain that's rooted in any kind of reality, even though the reality is swimming around him in the form of dead bodies, and affliction, and heads rolling across marble floor. But I, I've I've tried to pull something deeper out of it. I'm I, like, does he not? Does he really not notice the momentum shifting, or is he gotten so far, arrived so late that he's making a, a decision a lot of heroic people make, but maybe it's a little bit less explored. But we kind of celebrate it whenever it's done for the good of someone else, right? Of kind of right. just throwing yourself in the fire. That's what the question that I have kind of is like and I brought it up a little bit at the beginning, is why when Quentin is doing all these things, how come it doesn't land for me as a reader as it does with these other characters who are also kind of on these... Well, you're talking about Brienne. Were we talking about Brienne on the podcast or were we talking about Brienne beforehand? Who's to say? On this but, one. You know, Brienne's also on this journey, this very specific quest, and it doesn't feel cliche when she's walking around asking if anybody's seen a girl of however tall she is. I can't remember exactly in this exact moment. A girl of three and ten. I forget how tall she said. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's her age. She's not three feet. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I was like, did she, I was just thinking to myself, did she say like 5'11 or 5'10? No, 5 I was just thinking. Yeah, but you look at other people who are on these, or somebody even like Ned, who has this very specific, somebody who whose very specific desires and um, very specific moral code and very specific to him quest and he fails too that doesn't feel cliche maybe this is just kind of like 
how I see him as a character and the fact that people called him Frog for so long. <laughs> and Tattered Prince is like, Frog suits you so much better and than he wants any other name. Yeah, and it's just, it all feels just kind of silly, you know? So that's why I think that the narrative is specifically written to be more of that trope and to fall mm. into that more so than other any other characters because this is this kind of just like another lesson when it comes to all the many that we're learning in A Song of Ice and Fire. And I think as, as, as the Tattered Prince is talking to him, and I know that he has history with him and he kind of screwed him over, sort of. He's like... They're I don't know, really so many strict things. about that kind of stuff, those cell swords. Yeah, but he's like, so there's a couple things. So first, he's like, sit, I understand you're a prince. Would that I had known. Stuff like, and then he you're says You're going to read later, all of his passages if you're going to try to pinpoint his sarcasm. I know, but <laughs> there's a lot of stuff I want to read, but I am trying to pick and choose because it's like eight paragraphs. But he says to Quentin, Quentin tries to like basically excuse he's like i i'm a prince and i had the secret pact the secret marriage pact and that's why i had to leave like so i'm absolutely excused because and you should still trust me because i'm a prince and i had this side plot that you just didn't know about it says like the tattered prince gave a shrug every turn cloak has his tail you're not the first to swear to me your swords take my coin and run all of them has re- have reasons my little son is sick my wife is putting horns on me blah 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 blah, blah. um then he talks about the cook that he cooks um the guy that complains about food, and then he's like, okay, we'll cook your foot, and now you can Yeah, it. all that kind of stuff. But he's like, but I'm the Prince of Dorne. I had a duty to my father and my people. There was a secret marriage pact. To me, that kind of, again, you know, I don't know. If somebody else is in this situation, how would they react? If somebody like Tyrion was in this situation, or if Daenerys is in this situation, it might have played out kind of the same with a person like the Tattered Prince, but he is just has such a sarcastic tone that I just feel like, people kind of treat Quentin that way. And so it's hard for me not to read into that as just like this narrative, like this lesson that we're supposed to learn from his overall narrative. And that maybe Mm. he is, you know, supposed to just be that. I don't know. It just seems so much more strong-armed than George does other things. And maybe that's part of the him rewriting things quickly at the end of the book. I hate to, to dog at the quality versus the sort of deep, rich layers of the painting that he's done in other points of view. But I, the the richness, I think, comes if if that's what you're if you're right about what you're talking about. The, the richness would come from the window into the tattered prince's point of view in this chapter, dispelling useful info while we're getting told a evidence to a trope that we all know at this point. Mm-hmm. It may be a shallow reading and a shallow interpretation of who he is as somebody who would prefer not to spend time on so many side plots, you know, like to me, that's going to be that's going to be the point of view that I'm going to come from. And so it might be a shallow interpretation, but yeah, I mean, it does add to the action. We could we could have potentially skipped this one and gone right to him trying to steal the dragon, but I think it would have made less sense. And I think that, like I said, the... I'm saying we just skip him, period. I'm not <laughs> saying we skip... We just find out what happens in a Barry chapter that he's been toasted? No, he just, like, doesn't exist. Mm. Or no, from no worse of the wear. 
<laughs> I, I think that there's more to it though, honestly. I think that his I think, right. I think that he knows. I think that that he knows that the momentum is shifting and that it's almost too far. And I think that's part of the reason why he so comfortably tells them not to come and doesn't try to give them a big speech on how they need to do their duty to House Martell and to Dorn and try to fulfill their plan. And and that he doesn't say people have died and we need to make their deaths worthwhile. He says that I need to make their deaths worthwhile, not us, not our plan, not our fellowship. And I don't know, I just feel like he's... From the from the way that he's bouncing back and forth between his italics and the way he's, he's speaking in their conversation before they go to the Purple Lotus about the reasons why he's motivated to do this stuff, it just feels like he's almost lying to himself, but not completely. Like he's still he's still aware that the world is real around him. And I mm-hmm. think that that's evident in the way that he chooses to converse with the Tattered Prince. I think that his gamesmanship really stepped up a notch when he started to talk about the dispersion of troops and the subsequent dispersion of power from, I forget the guy's name, Harzu, who died <laughs> in the uh, <laughs> in the Great Pyramid, when uh, or not in the Great Pyramid, but in the fighting pits whenever Drogon landed. And I got to find that quote because it's so poetic. This is a, a line from the Tattered Prince. Ancient tidings, I saw him die. The poor man saw a dragon and stumbled as he tried to flee. Then a thousand of his closest friends stepped on him. No doubt the Yellow City is awash in tears. Did you ask me here to toast to his memory? That's cold. It's a classic shitty situation, and it's a tough life. He saw a dragon, <laughs> tried to flee. Thousands of his closest friends. Closest friends, I love. That that's what he, yeah, it's funny. All the while, well, all this is happening, Quentin's thinking in his head one wrong word, and this could turn to blood in half a heartbeat. He says, Yurkes, so, I mean, he does understand the stakes. Zoe Yunzak was the man who hired you. He signed our contract on behalf of his city, just so. Marine and Yunkai have made peace. The siege is to be lifted. The armies disbanded. There will be no battle, no slaughter, no city to sack and plunder. Tata Prince, life is full of disappointments. And then uh, here, here's where I think he had landed on it. How long do you think the Yunkishmen will want to continue paying wages to four free companies? But I think the Tattered Prince has such a great comeback to that. What's the comeback? He's like, everyone's going to, somebody's going to be fighting somewhere. People are always fighting battles. Oh, I love and look that. how much of a mess it is here. I'm going to read that. Freedmen and slavers eye each other's necks and sharpen their knives. The sons of the harpy plot in their pyramids. The Pelmare rides down slave and lord alike. Our friends from the Yellow City gaze out to sea, and somewhere in the grasslands, a dragon nibbles the tender flesh of Daenerys Targaryen. It's not like this is the Windblown's first quest, or like their first time out here. Right, but I think that all of the perspectives that the Tattered Prince was giving him and such a deep insight into the way that his mind thinks and about how he... I have have quotes, but I think it's more so just... uh, Let me find that. Even as we sit here drinking, Bloodbeard is urging our Yunkish friends to present King Hisdar with another head. I just feel like that kind of insight, on top of as freely as he's been talking to someone that he now knows is a prince of a great house in Westeros, someone like him, I think, respects those positions, albeit he's also someone that disrespects positions of power Mm -hmm. and understands what they are for real, also knows that there is some inherent value to that. I feel like he hasn't really been taking Quentin seriously. And I think that 
with this description of their scenario, I think that he was a little bit more intrigued. And then finally, whenever he dropped the bombshell that I think surprised all of us, saying yeah. that, no, I want you to help me steal a dragon. I think that he was I think that he was legit impressed to some they, like, degree. Whistle. Yeah. They whistle. Yeah. In the in the room. Yeah. So do you think ugh, how do I want I was thinking of this and I don't remember what I was trying to say about it. Do you think that Quentin being revealed as a prince actually matters to the Tatter Prince, which you're kind of talking about here? And do you think that that has to do with why he asked for Pentos? Do you think that the Tatter Prince really thinks that Quentin can deliver on a promise like that? Or do you think he's just, like, hedging his bets and weighing his options? I think that he's confident that the men he puts in the scenario to help— will make it out alive because they're skilled. And I think that he can also afford to lose people that are close to him, and he's been doing it for a long time. So I think that to say that he's hedging his bets is a fair is a fair guess. But I also do think that, like I said, he's intrigued a little bit by this and thinks it might be possible. I don't think that he thinks it's possible because Quentin has the blood of a Targaryen in him. And I'm, I'm glad we didn't get that awkward moment, honestly, for Quentin <laughs> <laughs> as a justification to their plan. But I think that he thinks that it's bold. And I think that he... Follows a code of, of of a mixture of boldness and of attention to detail and of awareness. Mm-hmm. I think that it's mostly attention to detail and awareness, but I think that he's intrigued by boldness in some regard, especially when it's something that he hasn't thought of yet. And I think that he thinks that if they can come out with it, that he'll have access and or can take it. And that it's kind of a win-win. I don't think that Quentin being involved so closely with the Great House in Westeros makes him believe that he can have a bigger chance taking Pintos back. But I do think that he thinks that it doesn't hurt to have the ear of Dorne. The way that Quentin talks about them getting paid, he offers them double, and this is still when the prince thinks that he might just be trying to hire them back amidst all this fighting to help Marine, help them fight out. I don't know. Help them get Daenerys wet yeah. for his bed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> um... Sorry, that just threw me for a loop. Sorry. <laughs> um, what was I saying? That's the all I that can Quentin, think about now. <laughs> the way that Quentin was talking about how he has these money and resources and how he was going to pay them. Oh, yeah. He says that when they traveled from Westeros, they deposited all the, all of their gold in the bank in Volantis. They have the papers. So he has some kind of evidence, which I know that they shit on. But at the same time, it's better than nothing. He's offering them double. He's also truly associated. He's the son of the guy who runs a large section of land in Westeros, which is currently non-contested in the same way that Essos, especially the disputed lands, as their namesake, is being contested. And he lives this way. He lives as a, as, as, a, as a traveling leader, as someone who has basically a backpack full of stuff. And mm-hmm. so I think that even though he understands the realistic qualities that um, humans share and that power is just like his raiment, it's just the way you see it. And if I take it off, it's different. And it's all liquid and a lot less upfront than things seem, I still think that he gives enough respect to it to consider it. And that, like I said, I think that he thinks that it wouldn't hurt if he had Dorne on his side. If he was able to accomplish whatever Quentin ends up asking him for, maybe he he always thought it would be Pentos. Maybe he only thought of Pentos because he liked the plan. Maybe he's just saying Quentos because, or Quentos, the fresh maker. <laughs> no. Maybe he's just saying, uh, 
maybe he's just saying Pentos because he doesn't take this guy seriously. His friends all know what their overall it's like the biggest plot thing is. he can think about. Yeah, and it's the biggest thing that he could say. It could the, honestly, I don't know. It really depends on how he has taken this conversation. But right. he didn't kill him, and they could have. They could have just killed those guys easily. Well, he said he's like, I'm going to wait for you to tell me what's up. I'm not going to kill you before that, which mm-hmm. I thought was funny. So you were talking about a little bit earlier about how this Quentin's point of view kind of gives us this insight into the Tattered Prince and his kind of who he is as a character. And we get this information about how he wants Pentos back, whether that's actually true, whether that's like actually something he truly, really wants or it's something that he said in this conversation because he thought that it was a huge ask if that is something that he truly wants and if that is one of his goals then what why like why would why does the tattered prince and this is a question that we asked on our patreon um why does he want pentos and what would he do with that and kind of what's his end goal as a character or do you think that this was Again, just like that's the biggest thing, thing he could think of. There's a quote, some advice, some free of advice that he gave. In this world, a man must learn to seize whatever gifts the gods chose to send him. In this world, a man must learn to seize. I post the base of that advice. Let's just start it over and read it once. In this world, a man must learn to seize whatever gifts the god chose to send him. That was a lesson I learned at some cost. I offer it to you now as a sign of my good faith. He was offered the leadership of Pentos, albeit a nasty one that wouldn't have ended up well for him at the ripe age of 23. Turned it down. That's how he has this nickname now. And he's been satellite fighting for and or around it and the shifting of power of those th- of those free cities bunched up in the disputed lands and above. Tyrosh, Mir, mm-hmm. Pentos, Volantis. This this has been going on in this continent for a long time. It's not like the organized qualities of Westeros. It's like more dangerous dictatorships and collections of political parliaments using the men and the influence that they have while also paying for the men and the influence of other people that are willing to do it in a way that doesn't survive right now in Westeros. There's no major free companies galloping around. They all are sworn to houses and, and, and unless they're rebelling ultimately to the Iron Throne. And I think that he's always wanted to get Pentos back. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably why he's remained this kind of person and done what he's done. But... I think maybe not until now. He hasn't thought it was very realistic. That's so interesting to me that it's just interesting to me that this his conversation with Quentin is you would think the moment that he realizes that, that that's potentially realistic. I don't think that this is the moment that he th- thought it was realistic. I think that it's been on his mind for a while and this is part of his bet hedging. Yeah, I think this that is this just is an option. I think that that's why he went to that he sent those people to go treat with Daenerys ahead of the the company as they went with Yunkai. Mm-hmm. I think that 
he saw the Dragon Queen and her dragons, maybe her dragons, but more so just the destabilization of Slaver's Bay, which could ultimately lead to destabilization in other parts of Essos as an opportunity to shake up the current power structure. And I don't know if he's had that same opportunity for a long time, not since the black, the end of the, like the black fire rebellion or the war of the nine penny Kings, which you guys can all go look that up or read the world of ice and fire. And everyone's kind of just been chill. Barry's been chill since then. And he was involved, but it's not chill anymore. Mm -hmm. So he's like, I've been waiting a long time and this might be my moment. And it's sort of the same thing that is an undercurrent in Quentin's perspective, not exactly the same, but a similar sort of quality where, Quentin has, is making a decision right now for this to be his moment. He's going to walk in front of the flame of, of a dragon, potentially. He's going to go into the Great Pyramid with Daenerys not there and try to steal one of her dragons. One of the most dangerous creatures on the planet. Among all of these savage people with really sharp spears and knives and swords and weirdly shaped objects that are designed for killing. And there's mm-hmm. a couple of you. There's only a few of you. So why is this your moment? It's the same thing with the Tattered Prince, I think. I think he's comfortable in his company, and he's comfortable with his own strategy, and he's comfortable playing the long game, but I think maybe he he might be choosing this as his moment because I don't think in his lifetime, or at least in a long time, he's seen something to this level of destabilization where he's able to take, right. take advantage of dominoes falling for other people to sort of claim his seat of power. I think... The more interesting question is what he's what does he want to do with it? If the destabilization right. is so serious, where he can put finally stick his neck out in a way he hasn't for a long time, potentially, what is his plan? What will he do with it? I think that's a good question because, well, I think that people speculate and talk about Pentos and the future of Pentos in something like The Winds of Winter and how. Because Daenerys' story started there, we'll probably see her back there at some point. And that it's mentioned so often, and so with somebody like the Tattered Prince, that there's got to be some significance about us returning to a place like that. My question, and one question that is out there, is if he knows Illyrio at all. Because yeah, there's this speculation, sure. which I think, there's a speculation that I think is interesting that he is the reason either the reason why he left in the first place or there's some sort of grudge or rivalry or some sort of relationship between those two that is motivating the tattered prince to want to go back to pentos to kind of either change things or face him or kind of like play out the rest of this plot with illyrio i think that that sounds nice for a story in a book for sure but i think that what george is writing is a uh, collection of sort of realistic dominoes or he's trying to at least make a collection of realistic dominoes falling based on the base instincts of men in these positions of power and also the ones that follow them and i think that illyrio is definitely against the windblown I think that the windblown is definitely against the leadership of Pentos and Illyrio has his hand in that pot, but he also has his hand in the pot of just being a rich strategic person in Mm -hmm. Essos, in in Planetos at large. And I think that they all play against each other. 
based sure. on the strategy, especially in Essos, these people sure. specifically. I think that it happens in Westeros in different ways, and I'm sure it happened north of the wall for the free folk, but maybe less so because of all the stuff they had to deal with. But while there's really crazy rules and really uh, dangerous sort of natural environments, and while you have the Dothraki riding around all the time, I think that people play really seriously. And I think that they would probably make the Tattered Prince really happy to see someone like Illyrio fail miserably by his hand. And I think that Illyrio, conversely, would really enjoy planning while he's being carried around by people the demise of free companies that have been a thorn in his ass for way too long. And I think Illyrio, to us, seems pretty untouchable. Not untu- not completely untouchable, but I mean, he has his hand in so many things and he seems to be so powerful that who's going to... This could just be like an interesting foil for him. For sure. Potentially. That's the thing, though. This guy is also renowned. And he also travels comfortably. He's not being carried by people physically, but he is surrounded by a free company of people that are loyal to him. Exactly. He can be the tattered prince when he puts on the cloak and he could live his life commander in charge, highest of the highest to these people. Then he can take the cloak off Mm -hmm. and just assimilate into society and be a free man. Mm-hmm. And Illyrio can barely walk around his house. Right. <laughs> True. <laughs> he definitely has a little bit more freedom. Big Yezin so. vibes, honestly. But not, I don't know, <laughs> not as nice. Way more, I don't know, Yezin had a bunch of slaves. It's it's weird over here, for real. It's There's weird. a lot of things happening. Yeah, but. yeah, and these people are also just so ruthless. That's, that's I think, the, the biggest quality of the storyline in Essos. It's just the level of ruthlessness that we're not really used to, even though we're used to murder. There's some kind of some kind of code that permeates through most of the people in Westeros. And whenever we meet people like Vargo Ho, it's scary. It's, it's sort well, of nightmarish. It's, it's like this quote-unquote foreign land to our typical West, like our posh Westerosi life. And they're so far away from home. And I think that it's... I think that there's a lot of um, simplifications and what's the word I'm thinking of? Stereotypes. I think there's a lot of like stereotypes that come into play and especially the way it's written. I think it's meant to be stereotyped a little bit more that mm-hmm. these like foreign to our Westeros story plot lines are much more savage because it's these stereotypes of these lands that are so different from one that Daenerys is used to. There's some there's a there's some collection of savage occurrences in Westeros so far. For sure. For sure. But for sure. But are any as casual as the two naked men fighting on the first floor of the purple lotus of the guy slumped against the wall dead from the flux? Things are really bad in Marine. And that's from an organizational standard. That's not just from a marauding band of people or the right. crazy elements of Cersei's leadership in King's Landing. Right. That's just kind just, of like the, I don't want to say the cult. <laughs> I don't want to say that's like the culture because I do think, like I was saying, it's deeply stereotyped in a lot of ways. I think from George R. R. Martin's writing it that way. But that's, like, so deeply ingrained in their culture. I think it makes a lot of sense based on those elements that we talked about, though, with their mm-hmm. the way that their cities are spread out and the way that the continent has operated since the Doom of Valyria. It's just kind of been power grab from power grab from power grab. And that makes me think about, again, what 
the tattered prince if this is really what he wants and he wants it in a serious way and not just to keep coasting on and survive and be rich and safe and have some kind of influence enough to at least please him for the kind of mind that he has why he really would want to be the head of of a kind of city state like pintos and i'm wondering what he would get from that in my head it's like he already has an army so would he get right. their men their wealth okay access to more wealth i think he could probably get if he just went to Westeros or if he was a little bit more strategic now. But maybe there's just so much money that it's it's hard to compare it, the riches of sacking a, a, a city and having control of a city like that. And if he did it under the banner of someone else, if, if Daenerys was leading them there, I know that there would be some kind of a split. He wouldn't get all of that. And she would also want to police him in some way. And so there's that to, to consider. But in this way, he could potentially do it all on his own and not have to share the profit or the the plunder or the um, influence with anyone. I mean, I'd like to think kind of much like Quentin is in this chapter, his motivations kind of come from his relationships. I would think that the Tattered Prince desire for Pentos may come from, whether it's like we were saying, somebody like Illyrio or somebody else or some other sort of relationship or some other sort of personally motivated i would say i would lean more towards it's less to do with the trappings of power because he already had that opportunity and he left and more so to do with some sort of thing that happened to him or revenge type Mm. of situation or person that he was motivated to take down or he wanted to prove to himself blah 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 you know to me that seems like a more likely he sounds a lot like quentin then (laughs) sounds sounds pretty familiar to me sort of ignoring the the details and the reality surrounding you and heading toward a goal that might not have much of a purpose what is the destination down that road that you're trying to lead down if daenerys is just if the road goes through her what is the destination at the end of the road both for quentin and for the tattered prince are they foils to each other in this chapter? I don't... Their goals? Their motivations? One's much more well-spoken than the other, as I say that horribly. And one I, is surprisingly there, mentally. It's interesting to... Well, so you were saying... Before we kind of got off on this thing on the Tattered Prince, I wanted to ask you a couple more questions about Quentin, and this kind of like wraps around to that, is you were talking about Quentin being much more self-aware than I, like I'm I'm reading him one way and you're reading him as going into this, totally understanding the situation, totally understanding kind of his surroundings, not totally, but more so than I am reading it, coming into this with a little bit more wherewithal. So... Why do you think that he then does what he's doing if he, like, how do you see him seeing this as his best option? Or how do you see him and his relationship with somebody like the Tatter Prince potentially playing out? I mean, say, for example, that, like, Quentin doesn't die and he's just severely injured. We'll talk about that a lot more in Quentin's, that chapter. But what would their Hmm. relationship be? look like if Quentin survives and why do you think that Quentin made this decision with the facts that he had if he is more self-aware than I would necessarily read it as I think that if Quentin went home 
and or if the Tatter Prince went back to just being a free company, not trying to take a place, that they could comfortably live within a system of wealth that they're used to and with some kind of protection because they're important to the people that follow them and because they're important to other people, not just the people that follow them, but other people and within the influence sphere. I think that no matter what happens to Westeros outside of White Walkers, that Dorne is going to be really tough to crumble as we've seen throughout the histories. Mm -hmm. And I think that he's probably safe in some regard, no matter what. And we'll have a decent existence and probably with whoever ends up winning, have a good marriage and we'll be able to, to do something. I don't know how he's going to split influence and power between Arianne and the Sand Snakes. Whatever claim that anyone has is still up in the air because Doran's still around. Right, right. But I think that it's comfortable enough not to be compared to potentially dying. And I think that the Tatter Prince also is, like I said, sticking his neck out in a way that is uncharacteristic to how he's gotten this far in the first place. It's part of the reason why he survived. I mean, it's funny to say that because if he would have been made the leader of Pentos, he would have, I guess, been mercy killed or right. killed as part of a, a weird ceremony in some way after, after an amount of time and uh, did not want that to happen. And so has sort of skirted his uh, destiny for a long time. And uh, like I said, might be sticking his neck out now to sort of shake things up. And I think that they both have come to the, the place of making a decision. And like I said before, I think that maybe they feel like the odds are in their favor. But I think that the Tatter Prince's situation is definitely better than Quentin's when it comes to getting what he wants. But at the same time, it's he has all more options. He has more options and it seems like he has more autonomy, but I think that their comfort that they could fall back on is similar. And I think that if, uh, if Quentin succeeded, that there would probably be some kind of backstabbing going on from the windblown, just because I don't think that they still see him that as that important of a character. Unless his Targaryen blood turned out to be an actual factor in taming the dragon and they were unable to otherwise, then I think that they would have to sort of accept him and let him into the fold in some way and kind of depend on his leadership in a way where he sort of told them how things were going to be to a degree. Right. Because if he has a dragon, then he has power. Right. But I don't no know. No matter how, how he got that. Right. But I don't know how aggressive he would be about it. If he would give them rules, for example, about how they should disperse the wealth or how they should handle the people that they're overtaking in Pentos, I'm not sure. Don't know if we're ever going to have to go into that, but I think that is interesting. Yeah, that was another question, just like overarching question I just had reading this chapter is like how, and this is the question that we've had all throughout Marine that I've mentioned every episode. But it's like, how much time are we actually going to spend here? If Daenerys never comes back or if and when she comes back and when she leaves, how much of this stuff is going to be important to us unless Tatterprince, Quentin-ish stuff leads to Pentos, you know, then that might be something that Daenerys would get involved in. But there's so much happening here that feels confusing because when Daenerys leaves, it's not going to necessarily quote-unquote matter anymore well it might matter because barry has promised pentos to the windblown also right so it's like who's to see who's to say but i think that the weird situation with quentin will probably if he does die maybe be a point of a conversation between daenerys and her newfound ally 
if she does come back. But obviously, it doesn't really matter right now, and no one really knows about it. So, mm, you know, it might just go the way of story fodder. Not that it was, it was left off because there was no way to tie it up, but just because it just adds to the element of his situation being so steeped against the momentum of how everything else was going that it was just that folly in the first place. I don't know, but our next chapter with Quentin is going to be very exciting because there's a lot of stuff I want to talk about with, you know, Blood of the Dragon and stuff like that that we didn't get to talk about this time, so. Like what? Like, well, it was one of the questions that we asked on Patreon, whether or not Quentin has the Blood of the Dragon and if that actually Hmm. matters when it comes to it. And if he can be successful and if he isn't dead, what that means, you know, I think there's a lot of... There's a lot of interesting questions that will also come up in the next chapter when it pertains to kind of Quentin's journey. So, what do you think about the Tattered Prince's potential knowledge of what's really going on in Westeros? Do you think that he knows about the White Walkers? And do you think, oh, because I feel like maybe that's going to inform how he decides to move forward from here? To me, if he has been successful enough in being a What's those name? Like a sales company of sell swords. If you can, if you can build a career off of going from place to place fighting battles, you have to have a pulse on everything that's going on. You got to know what's going on. It sounded like at he least knew about the poison level. Yeah, like he's got it. He's he absolutely knows a lot of stuff. I don't know if he necessarily knows anything about that situation yet. But to me, he seems like he has to be, in order to be successful, the kind of guy that has his thumb on a lot of different conversations. So maybe he'll get involved. Maybe he'll get what he wants in Pentos and he'll we'll never hear from him again. Well, I don't know, man. Seems seems like a potential last-ditch effort or a potential calculated effort that's going to be last-ditched by this overarching horror that could be releasing from a place that's just one narrow sea away. If that's a thing. Dead things in the water. Why not make a bridge with your dead carcasses for your friends to cross once you've taken over Westeros? Right. I mean, that's going to be the big struggle is to get people to understand that something that is happening that's so seemingly far away, even for the people that are close to it, is going to change everything and that people need to be paying attention. That's going to be like the major battle, obviously, as we saw. And also for us as God mode readers to sort of judge these people that have really wise minds inside of their situation and still be able to give them some kind of judgment, which is nice because otherwise I don't think that I could really talk about the tattered prince in a way that sounded like I knew better than him just because I've read the story. But knowing that this is all happening within the container of there being a a real global threat that's coming and that this is all kind of meaningless really puts in perspective a lot of their decisions, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see like who's really involved in that. All right. So you got to leave for a meeting? Yeah. Let's do this. Seven minutes. Let's do this, people. We can make it. I'm going to give my own to the bluish smoke in the first level of the (laughs) Purple Lotus. Why do you laugh? Because it's it's a very specific one. I really like it. 
Oh, well, you don't know if you like it yet. It's it's pertains to terrible things, but p- potentially non-terrible things. Okay, so Nightshade is blue, okay? There's other things that are blue in this world, but let's focus on the weird elements of Nightshade. What is it? How do you make it? Some kind of draught. Maybe the same thing that's in that is in whatever they're smoking. You know what I'm saying? People can smoke all kinds of weird things, especially in a place like this. Think about it. But when I started to think about it a little bit more, I was like, you know, honestly, this whole chapter gives me, especially being inside these buildings, but also in the alleyway, it gives me a kind of a House of the Undying vibe. It's a Ooh. it's a place where we're surrounded by all these fantastically cruel elements that are painting so specifically the world around us. And instead of focusing on the world around him, he was focusing on fantasy. And it made me think that it was easier to pay attention to the House of the Undying because we knew that it was a really strange place and that they were using potentially psychedelics and or real magic to make these visions pop in Danny's head. But is there really a difference between that and the real world? I don't think so. I think that it's all kind of the same. And that one is, the volume is turned up on one so it's really obvious, but if Quentin would have looked around him, he might have avoided dying in the next chapter if he does really die. But if he wins, it was good that he ignored it. <laughs> or wins, that's a simple way to put it. If he survives in some way. Yeah, I don't know about wins. I don't know. But... I think maybe it'll embolden him to Daenerys' cause somewhat, which I don't know if that's part of the destination he's headed for, good for him. Maybe it's not good what happened to him overall, but... It really made me, he just gave me that feeling. It was just the 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 violence and the cruelty and the uh, sort of just the illustrated elements were so loud, but also so specific that it gave me the vibe of a, of a place that was meant to be that specifically. I know that that's the sign of something that's well-written, but it was also so heavy-handed and there was blue smoke. So, House of the Undying. <laughs> Love it. I like it even at the end of the own. Um, I'm going to give my own to the Tattered Prince coming off of our little convo about him. Um, I want to read this paragraph that we talked about sort of a little bit, but I want to read the whole thing. Um, Right when Quentin arrives, it says, Quentin approached his table. My lord, you look different without your cloak. My ragged raiment, the Pentoshi gave a shrug. A poor thing. Yet those tatters fill my foes with fear. And on the battlefield, the sight of my rags blowing in the wind emboldens my men more than any banner. And if I want to move unseen... I need only slip it off to become plain and unremarkable. He gestured toward the bench across him, sit. I understand you're a prince. Would that I had known. Um, I just love the self-awareness of his dirty cloak and how important that is. And it reminds me a lot of the conversation we had last episode about Barristan the Bold and kind of how we get our names and what becomes important and symbolic and this coat that he probably just has had for a really long time and now it's just become his thing, emboldens so many men. In so, such a natural way. Own to that. If you were just listening and you aren't reading along, you got to crack open this chapter and read it because the the wordplay is excellent and also the environments that they enter. I know that we talked about them being kind of quintessentially mysterious, and they are, even the underseller. They go to a place called an underseller where there's a single black candle lighting the whole room and it's a big room i mean do i need to go any further 
<laughs> this is one that's worth reading for sure, even if you think that Quentin might be a disposable side character. There's good marine stuff in here, but just good stuff overall, I think. And if you want to read it and send in your own, give us your thoughts, feelings, etc. We have one today from Travis Cole at Straight Savage Cole on Twitter, who says, who I'm not going to be able to pronounce this whole own, but, you know, I'm going to give it my best. He says, my own for the spurned suitor goes to Sir Archibald when he says that he calls, quote-unquote, them Aharzu. I felt that in my soul, haha. Also an honorary own for the subtle drop of... How do you say this person's name? I'm not looking at it. <laughs> this... Oh, Jalabarzo. Also an honorary own for the subtle drop of Jalabarzo, <laughs> though not in name but in description. So thank you, Travis, for sending that in. Um, if you want to do that yourself, you can find us on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, all at Game of Owns. You can send us an email to contact at gameofowns.com or you can sign up for our Patreon, which is new and improved. We've revamped it. We've got a ton of new content on there, including Squadcast. If you remember from back in the day, we used to do that. We're doing that again. Zach has a solo reread podcast where he's starting from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So we've got a ton of great content up there. Want to give us the... How can they find that? Patreon.com slash Q. Or also... So go check it out. Linked it to rereadadviceandfire.com just in case you forgot the first email <laughs> or the first URL. Our next chapter is The Sacrifice. And we're going to do the same for our episode right this moment and sacrifice it to the gods. It is over. Hannah has to leave immediately for a work meeting on Zoom. <laughs> and we'll see you all later. Bye, guys. Bye.